just uh, your greatness and goodness that you display towards us each and every day. And God, as we come here tonight, we are just humbled to be in your presence, to be amongst your people. And God, we just pray that uh, tonight would be a night once again that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would encourage us through your spirit and through your word. And God, that each one of us would leave this place a little bit different than when we walked in. That God, we would be a little bit more like Jesus Christ uh, as we walk out of this place tonight. And we just pray, God, that as you uh, open up Romans chapter 12 to us tonight, especially, that each of us would just be moved to make some kind of, of commitment or decision tonight in our walk with you. God, just may you be glorified by all that we say and do. Give us a great evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Awesome songs. Goes along with the, the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at tonight. Romans chapter 12. We've been taking a chapter a week, but uh, tonight I have no problem slowing down a little bit because this chapter is just so important and one that we don't want to just rush through. It's just so important to where we are in our Christian lives. And I don't want any of us to miss what I think God has for us tonight. Let me just sort of remind us all too that in our study of the book of Romans, we are looking at a book that basically tells us, here's what a life defined by God looks like. If we want to know, if somebody was just to turn over their life and say, God, here's my life, you know, you, you do with it whatever you will, what would that look like? It would be found in the book of Romans. And the reason I say that is because tonight, especially, a life being defined by God is a life that is responding back to God to what God is doing in our lives. God always initiates, but he's always desiring and looking for a response back from his children as he works in our lives, as he reveals himself to us. And we see that truth coming out in Romans chapter 12. I just want to read the first five verses tonight. And if we get through all these five, we'll move on. But but we're just going to look at these five for a while and then we'll see where we go from there. Paul says, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment, as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. For just as in one body we have many members, and not all the members serve the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members who belong to one another. The first thing back up in chapter 12, verse 1, is this. Paul is saying, a life defined by God is one that God is reaching into my life. He is, he is sharing with me some, something. He's revealing himself to me. And he wants me to respond back. In chapter 12, verse 1, he wants me to respond back in service to him. 
In fact, the very first word of chapter 12, verse 1 is therefore. And as I've shared with you before, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, it always goes back and picks up everything that's been there before because everything that Paul has said up to this point in the book of Romans has laid the foundation for what he's saying to us right here and now. So therefore, reaches all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, and brings us all the way up through chapter 11. And everything that Paul has shared with us up to this point about what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ lays the foundation for what Paul is asking us to do, which he considers to be more than reasonable, which is to present our body a living sacrifice, basically to offer our life up to God. And here's why Paul would say that. He says in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we've learned the magnitude of our sin. We have been confronted with our sin and the depths of our sin and how hopeless we were in our sin. Yet we were also uh, revealed to us in the book of Romans, the answer that God had for that sin. That was Jesus Christ and his purpose perfect sinless sacrifice that came that that gave provision for that and atonement for our sin and so god through christ was was willing and able to forgive us of our sin and not only that but then to implant in those who believe in jesus christ a righteousness that is not our own and beyond that god gives us through the book of romans this power that I can have available to me every day of my life in order to live for His glory. And so Paul says, because of all that and many other things that I've shared in the first 11 chapters of Romans, because of that, is it not reasonable, Christian, that we should come to a point in our life where we sort of raise the level of our, our commitment and involvement with Christ and His church and go, you know what, God... It's time for me to go up to another level. Because what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is not the day I got saved. It's not the the time where I committed my life to Jesus Christ and I had my sins forgiven and I'm I'm on my way to heaven. No, it's sometime after that. It's sometime after that because I need as a Christian to begin to absorb through growing in Christ and growing in my knowledge of the Bible to really fully understand and begin to understand all that God has done for me through Christ, which when I begin to realize that and realize the magnitude of where God brought me from and where God has placed me now and where God wants to take me and all that I have waiting for me as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, That's why Paul can say, is it not reasonable that we should get to a point in our Christian life where we say, you know what, this level of of my Christian life is not enough. I need to present my body as a sacrifice, and that's only reasonable, Paul said. That's the response that a Christian should come to at some point in their life back to what God has already done and is doing in my life. Why the body? Well, because our body is sort of the vehicle by which, you know, we we can glorify and praise God and witness for God and testify of God and live out for God. It's our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, you know, our minds, all of that, our everything, our bodies can be used. They are called the temple of the living God in the New Testament. Now, one of the things with coming to this point as a Christian is you'll notice here in verse 1 
that God says, but you're not one of those like Old Testament sacrifices that you actually, when you crawled up on the altar, you died. No, you didn't die when you crawled up on that altar and you sort of committed your life to a higher level as a Christian. You're a living sacrifice. And I've always said for years, the problem with the living sacrifice is a living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. And, and that's why sometimes we have to also come back to Romans 12:1 and realize that here's what Paul's saying when he uses the terminology of presenting our body a, a sacrifice. <clears throat> I compare it to the marriage relationship in this way. <clears throat> there comes a point in my Christian life where I go through what I call the Romans 12:1 path, where I, I say, you know what? I've got to raise my Christian commitment to a higher level. And I present my body. I, I make a one-time presentation of my body to God. But just like in marriage, any good marriage not only has that initial marriage ceremony where two people commit themselves to each other and exchange vows, but a good marriage, a great marriage, is going to have sort of a recommitment of that one-time commitment every day that they live. In other words, yes, I only said those vows maybe once in 23 years ago to my, to my wife, but, but I, I hope that I went back and that I re-examined those vows and I recommitted myself to following through with those vows every day after that. That's sort of the same thing that Paul is saying here. I don't have to present my body a living sacrifice to God 300 times in my life as a Christian. I really only do that once. But after that, I have to go back every day and sort of remind myself and recommit myself every day to the, to the vow, to the sacrifice, to the commitment that I made to God at some point in my life. Now, the reason what I said earlier before we even got started tonight is this may be new to some of you. And all I'm asking of you tonight, I'm not asking you to make any decision. I'm asking you to consider, maybe, for the very first time in your life, walking through Romans 12.1 and saying, you know what, Lord, through my study of the book of Romans, through coming to Cornerstone, through listening to Pastor Lynn, Pastor Ron, through other Bible studies, I am beginning to realize all that you have done for me, all that you're doing for me, and you know what, my level of commitment isn't, I, I need to make a higher commitment to you. I need to present my body to you. And maybe tonight you would consider doing that if you've never done that in your Christian life. You'll also see here in chapter 12, verse 2, that as we move on down through here, that one of the things Paul says that a life defined by God is not only one that is responding to what God is doing and maybe even coming to a point where I say, God... It's time for a deeper level of commitment from me. It's time for a greater involvement with me in, in what you're doing here on earth. But it also is a conscious effort every day to not allow the world and the world's philosophy to, to sort of put me into its mold and say, here's what a life defined by the world looks like. That's why he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this present world. Don't let the world and what the world says is success and what the world says is great and what the world says is meaningful. Don't let the world put you into its mold. 
reject what the world is going to try. Because the world, meaning the philosophy of the world that is anti-God and man-centered and not Jesus-centered, the world is going to try to put you into that mold and say, here's what you need to look like. And every day as a Christian, I need to consciously reject what the world is trying to do and trying to define who I am. I need to let God alone define who I am and what I am and what I become. In fact, as I've said before, I shouldn't even let myself define who I am and what I become. I should give that privilege and right to God alone. That's why then he goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind because it's in our mind where this all starts. And I have to change my thinking about myself, about life, about eternity, all of that stuff. And I've got to begin to get the mind of God and I've got to get God's perspective on this rather than my own perspective or on the world's perspective. Now the word transformed is a Greek word metamorpho where we get the word metamorphosis from and it just literally means being changed from the inside out. You see, that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to transform us, starting with our thinking, from the inside out. That's what the difference is between transformation and reformation. Reformation is when man tries to clean himself up from the outside in. And the problem with Reformation is, Reformation is never permanent, it's always temporary, and it's never complete. It always doesn't do the job. And that's why God says, Reformation never works. Because man can't totally reform himself and can't do it permanently. And can't do it eternally. But if you give me your life, I will not reform you, I will transform you. And I will begin to change you from the inside out. And I will begin to bring upon you this transformation where you and I become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's what God wants to do. And that's what a life defined by God looks like. One that is rejecting the world saying, you need to think like this, look like this, behave like this, have this in order to be successful. And now we've got to come over and we've got to adopt God's perspective in God's mind. For instance, just simple example. The world would say success is how many people do you have serving you? Jesus says, the person who's greatest in my kingdom is the one who's serving others. So you see the, the contrast there. And if we adopt the world's philosophy then we're going to go through our life not serving anybody, but trying to accumulate more and more people to serve us. And Jesus says just the opposite. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, we've got to be willing to serve. And of course, he was the greatest example of that. And that's just one example. And as I allow God to change my thinking and, and to get his mind it also is going to change my perspective on the will of God for my life. Notice at the end of verse 2. Because as God changes my thinking and my perspective on things, I'm going to get to a point where I test, approve, and figure out that the will of God for my life is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. And those words are not modifying or describing God, they're describing the will of God from my perspective. You see, a lot of even Christians say, well, if, if I just surrender my life to God, 
If I go through the Romans 12, one road and, and I present my body a living sacrifice, God's going to ask me to do something that, that I'm going to hate. I'm going to be miserable. I, I don't want to surrender my life to God because then I'm going to be miserable. And God says, no, you don't understand. As you allow me to transform your life and transform your thinking, and as you begin to get my mind and my perspective on things, here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out that, first of all, I created you, so I know you better than even you know yourself. I know what gifts, talents, abilities, personality. I know how I wired you. There's nobody else exactly like you in this world. And I know I have this uniquely well-fitted responsibility that I want to give to you to bring glory to me, but that can fulfill you and, and that can give you a purpose in life that will fit you like we say a glove. So far from the perspective that if I surrender my life to God, I'm going to end up doing something I don't want to do and I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. It's just the opposite. God says that by faith, if we will just surrender our life to Him, that we will come to find out as we continue to grow in our relationship with God, that whatever God's will is for my life, whatever God is asking me to do at the moment and into the future, it's going to be something that fits me. Something that fits me. For instance, let me just use myself as an example. I spoke my first message in church when I was 12 years old. When I was 12, I knew that God wanted me to be a preacher. He wanted me to teach the Bible. Now, I didn't surrender to God's will at that point. I fought God for many, many years. But the point I'm making is this. I think you all realize I like what I do. I'm not like kicking and screaming going, okay, God, I got to teach the Bible. Okay. No, I love it. And it fits me because it, it fits the way God made me and God made you the same way. And that we're going to see here in a moment, he gave you a unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities. And when you begin to surrender your life to God and follow his will for your life, and grow in your understanding of God and His will, you're going to come to find out it's a, it fits me. That's why I tell people, you know, because one of the things, well, He'll ask me to be this missionary in this foreign country. And, and you know what? I tell, I tell them back, I say, listen, if, if there are people that are missionaries in foreign countries, guess what? If they're truly following God's will for them, they want to be there. And they like being there. They're not miserable there. They, they were wired for that. That fits them, you see. They're not like, oh, I'm miserable. No, they enjoy it because they know they're exact. They're doing exactly what God created them to do. So I guess one of the other things I would just like to say tonight for us to consider is not only that presentation of my body, but that openness to whatever God's will is for my life, knowing and trusting that he's not going to call me to do something that's going to make me miserable for the rest of my life. That's not our God. In fact, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And, and if you follow me, whatever I'm going to give you, whatever responsibility or role within my kingdom that I'm going to give you, it's going to fit you. We also then come to understand going into verse 3 that if I allow God to change my thinking and perspective, it's also going to help me to see myself the way I should see me and the way God sees me. Because let's face it, there's a lot of us, even Christians, who we don't see ourselves in a healthy way. We either see ourselves of no value or we're pretty prideful and we see ourselves as more important than we should. 
And God says, one of the cool things about you letting me transform your mind and your thinking and by you saturating your mind with my word is that you're going to begin to get a very clear and well-rounded picture of who you are and, and where you are and what I think about you. That's why then in verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but at the same time, not to think more lowly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment, as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. Because notice in verse 4, here's now what Paul's going to begin to say. A life defined by God not only responds to God, with what God's doing in my life. And I believe that the Spirit of God is speaking to all of us here tonight. I don't know about what, but I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to all of us tonight about some something in our life. Is it presenting my body a living sacrifice and moving my commitment level up a little bit? Is it surrendering my life to the will of God for my life, knowing that it's not going to be torture, it's actually going to be very well-pleasing and it's going to fit me? Because God knows me better than I know myself. Could it be that I need to begin to change how I see myself? Could that be the decision that I need to make and allow God's word to shape how I see myself rather than how others see me, how I see myself, whatever? And then defined by God also means that I'm willing to be a part of the team. Because one of the things that we've now come to in Romans chapter 12 is this. That up to this point, pretty much Paul's been talking to us individually. And saying, here's individually what a life defined by God looks like. But now he's coming to a part in the book of Romans where he says, and you realize that a life defined by God is not only God working with just you and me, but how God works in concert with all of us as we come corporately together and we sort of mesh together in the body of Christ. And that's why I believe with all my heart, as we're going to see here again tonight, that the Bible clearly teaches that it is God's will that I become part of a local church. Now, we would love to have you be part of this local church. But I'm just telling you that it is God's will for you to be part of a local church. And we're going to find out why. Notice, similar to a sports team that has different roles and positions, but playing together to achieve one goal, which is to win a championship. So also, verse 4, just as in one body, we have many members and not all the members serve the same function. You see, again, God has called all of us to different roles and responsibilities within the body, but God has called us all to be in the body because spiritual growth does not take place in a vacuum. Spiritual growth takes place when I allow God to, to work in my life, transforming my life, transforming my thinking, but also bringing me into contact with his other children who he's gifted so that I can benefit from their gifts as I also benefit their life with my gifts, which is exactly what he goes on to say in verse five. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members. Don't miss this. Who belong to one another. I've had many people, especially, you know, as the years move on, I don't need to go to church. I know God. I have a relationship with God. I know where I'm going when I die. I don't need to go to church. And my response always back to them is this. You may not need to go to church. I would beg to differ with you. I could argue that point, but for the sake of argument right now, okay, I'll give you that. You don't need to go to church. 
But I look them in the eye and I say this, but you're being very selfish and here's why. Because the Bible teaches me that God has given you a unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities that can benefit the body of Christ. And if you stay away from the body and you don't come and be part of the body, then God can't use your gifts and abilities and talents to enhance the body, to help the body grow, to help the body become all that the body was meant to be. So you're being selfish by not coming to church. So here's my exhortation. Don't come to church for you. Come to church for others. That's why you should come to church. You see. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying because we have a responsibility to each other as Christians because we belong to each other. Because one of the things that I remind Christians of all the time is this. You have something that you can offer the body of Christ that none of us can. And if you stay away from the body and you don't come and be part of the body and get plugged into the body, then the body misses out and can't fully function and reach its potential as the body of Christ in this place if you don't come and join in. That's why we encourage folks to not only come, and we, we want you to come and just attend, but we also want you to come to a place at some point after you've attended here for a while where you consider... Getting involved, getting involved in some type of ministry and getting plugged in in some, because it goes back to what Paul is saying here. So again, I would just say this is what Paul is challenging all of us with tonight. And he's saying, look, guys, don't look around and start comparing yourself with each other. That's wrong. Because again, God has given all of us different gifts, abilities and a talent mix. And just like a snowflake, no two Christians are exactly alike. We don't have the same mix. And so don't go around comparing yourselves with each other, but be faithful to what God has given you and use it for His glory and for the building up of the church. Because notice then what he goes on to say in verse 6. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And one of the reasons why we shouldn't get so prideful is because the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given us, God has given us. So we don't take any credit for it. It's a gift from him. Therefore, we've got to remember not to get lifted up in pride with whatever gifts God's given us because they're his gifts to us. They're not because we're so wonderful type of thing. So be careful of pride. And secondly, not only does God want us to remember that these are his gifts of grace, but that we are to use them by grace, meaning we are to be empowered by him as we use them. Because just like anything, there's two sides of every coin. And the gifts that God gives us to build up the body, if we're not careful, if we're not allowing God to empower us as we use them, can be gifts that can be used to destroy and tear down the body. Because every gift sort of has a positive side to it and a negative side to it. All right. For instance, let me just and then I want to encourage you here in just a moment. Let me just take one gift, the gift of mercy. Some of you may have the spiritual gift of mercy. It's a great gift. It's a gift that really is sensitive to people and and see somebody hurting and 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 can really have compassion and understanding about what they're going through and God can use people who have the gift of mercy the negative side of that gift is that many times people who have the gift of mercy because they don't keep it in balance 
allow people to just walk all over them. And sometimes people with the gift of mercy have just tire treads all over them and, and, and shoe prints all over them because if you're not careful, the gift of mercy can go too far and you don't keep it in balance. And that's why Paul's about to say what he's going to say here in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift of prophecy, then that individual must use it in proportion to his faith. If it's service, he must serve. If it is teaching, he must teach. If it is exhortation, he must exhort. If it is contributing, he must do it with sincerity. If it is leadership, he must do so with diligence. If it is showing mercy, he must do so with cheerfulness. <laughs> you see, some people with the gift of mercy can, they can get so you know, weighted down by all these other problems that they begin to take them on themselves and all the joy and cheerfulness of their life goes out because they don't keep it in balance. What Paul's saying all in those verses, first of all, is this. God has given every Christian at least one gift, at least one spiritual gift. And it's, it's commanded by us here to use that gift. Why? Because as we use our gift, we're bringing glory to God because God is the one getting the credit for it because it's by grace. It's not because of us. And we're building up the body of Christ when we use those gifts. So God says, if you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of serving, serve. Gifts are like a muscle. If I don't use it, it's going to atrophy. That's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, rekindle that gift, Timothy, begin to use it because you have, you have neglected your gift. You, it's fallen into disservice. You're not using it anymore and it's getting flabby. You need to, to get that gift moving again and working again so that you can bring glory to God and so that you can build up the people of God around you. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts. I'll just say that. There are there are other passages of Scripture, and our study here in the book of Romans is not to talk about spiritual gifts. But I will say this. If you're here tonight, and you desire to know what your gift or gifts are, and you at least have one, and you've never, you don't know what they are, here's what I would encourage you to do. The next time on the screen, during the verbal announcements on Sunday, or in our program here at Cornerstone, you see the class, Discovering Your Gifts. I would encourage you to take that class because in that class, it's just a one one Sunday class, usually around 1130 during the 1130 service. They will help you to discover what your gift or gift mix is and how you can use that in the local church. So important. One of the, I guess, heartaches is a good word to use as a pastor for 23 years is how many Christians I have met who have been Christians for years and they have no clue what their spiritual gift is and how to plug that gift into the body to be able to build up the body of Christ. To me, that's a heartache. That's sad because the reason I say that is even for your own benefit, because you will experience a fulfillment and a satisfaction and a purpose in your Christian life that you will not experience until you're able to find out what your gift is and begin to use it. There's a whole other level of the Christian life once you find out what your gift is and when you begin to use it in the body of Christ. 
so very important. So as we talk tonight about a life defined by God, we're talking about responding to God. We're talking about maybe making a decision or commitment to present your body a living sacrifice. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you would consider looking at the will of God differently in your life and coming to a place in your life where God says, my will for you is really good. Won't you consider just surrendering your life and finding out what that will is for your life? Maybe a life defined by God is also seeing myself differently. That beginning tonight, for the very first time, you're going to start looking at yourself differently because you're not going to look at yourself through your eyes and through the eyes of others. You're going to begin to look at yourself through the eyes of God and through His Word and see yourself as you should see yourself and as God sees you. Maybe another way to define your life is by being willing to be part of the team and not being this Lone Ranger Christian out there on your own thinking, I can do this on my own because the Bible clearly teaches different. The Bible says God never designed us to grow in isolation. Spiritual growth does not take place in a vacuum. Spiritual growth takes place when we all come together and we encourage each other, we build each other up, we, we enhance each other's Christian life, we encourage each other. That's the way it's supposed to work. And can I just stop and say right now, before I forget, that many of you in this room, as I look out over this auditorium, you've had a tremendous impact on my life in the last couple of years since I came on staff at Cornerstone. You will never realize the encouragement that you have been to me and how God has used your life, your encouragement, your words, your attitude, your gifts, to speak into my life and to help me in my walk with God. I only hope that as God works through my life that I can be as much of a blessing back to you as many of you in this room have been to me. That's the way it's supposed to work. And maybe a life defined by God for the very first time, you're saying, you know what? I need to find out what my gifts are. I'm going to take that class when it comes around next time here at Cornerstone. I'm going to find out what my gifts are, and I'm going to begin to, in some way, figure out how can I use these gifts within the body to be able to build up other Christians and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. Because then as we come over to verse 9, here's what Paul begins to transfer. He says, look. I not only want you to concentrate on the fact that, yeah, we all have these gifts and we're supposed to use these gifts. And sometimes it's a very formal setting. I've got the gift of teaching. I'm teaching the mind Bible study on Tuesday night. But Paul doesn't want us to just get locked in to the fact that, okay, I've got these gifts and, and there's formal sort of set times where I've got to use this gift. God also wants us to realize, beginning in chapter 12, verse 9, that not only has God given me gifts to use, in a sense, in formal settings, but that God wants to use my life as a gift to use in very informal settings, just in the everyday sort of scrum of life. That as I interact with people, God wants to use my smile, my personality, my words, you know, just my joy, my hope that I, that I exude in my life. He just, as I rub up against people, God says, not only do you have gifts that I want you to use to encourage others, 
I want you to know that you are a gift. And that's something that we all need to remind ourselves of. That not only do we have a gift or gifts, but that God says you are a gift to this world, to this church, to your neighborhood, to your family. You are a gift. And if you just allow me to come in and sort of take over your life, as you rub up against all these people in your life, you're going to be a gift to their life. Here's why. Verse 9. Because the love that you are displaying to them, first of all, is going to be the foundation for all that you do. Everything that you do, the motivation for why you do it isn't going to be because I have to do it or it's my duty to do it like many people are. It's I want to do it because I truly love God and I truly love people and I'm going to do this because notice the very first line of verse 9 is love must be without hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy in the Greek literally is the word play acting. It means God doesn't want us to go through life just playing a role as it were a job. It's my duty. I'm nice to you because I have to be. You know? First of all, people are going to see through the fact very quickly that that's not real. That's not transparent. They're just playing a game. They're just putting on a mask. You see? No, God says people want to see reality today. In fact, more than ever, The church is desperate for reality. The world is desperate for reality. For people who are really connected with God and who allow God's reality of life to flow through them in a real way and not just a put-on way. Which leads me to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. Notice in verse 10, be devoted to one another with mutual love, going both ways, not just a one-sided relationship. Showing eagerness and honoring one another. Going out of the way to appreciate others and to honor them and to... Because again, that's why we're together. We're not together to discourage each other and to destroy each other. And we're together, God has brought us together to encourage each other and build each other up. Do not lag in zeal, verse 11... But be enthusiastic in spirit serving the Lord. I got to I got to work on that one. Not quite as passionate as I should be, but I'm I'm getting there. Literally, what that word means in the Greek is don't just go through the motions in a half hearted way. Or as we say it, get on fire. You know, get excited about something. I, I Tell Christians all the time, find something you can get excited about and do it. Find something that just gets you up out of bed in the morning and gets you excited about facing the day. Find a passion in your life. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. And may I remind you that beginning in verse 9, all of these commands or exhortations are all corporate. They're all plural. It's not individual. It's all of you be devoted to one another. All of you show eagerness in honoring one another. All of you in the body don't lag in zeal. All of you be enthusiastic in spirit. All of you serve the Lord. All of you get around each other and start rejoicing in hope and and building hope into each other. All of you endure in suffering. 
Because if we're all together and one is suffering and we all sort of gather around and, and say, okay, I'm not suffering right now, but you are. Let's just walk through this together. How encouraging is it for the one who is suffering? So all of you wrap around each other and endure in suffering. All of you persist in prayer together. Pray together. Pray with one another. Get prayer partners. Pray, pray, pray. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When things are going good, don't be jealous that somebody else is having a great time. Rejoice with them that they're going through a good time in life, even though maybe you're not. That's the ultimate in love and unselfishness. But on those times where they're going through a tough time, or you, you and I want somebody who will weep with us. Who won't even necessarily say something, but who will just be there to just maybe hug us and just weep with us. This is the body dynamic here. And again, all of these exhortations obviously implies that we're not out there on our own, but that we're part of the body. And that we're willing to put ourselves out there at least enough to begin to build some healthy relationships with others in the body. And, and, and begin to, to do this Christian life together. Rather than all alone. Because God doesn't want you to feel alone. First of all, God's always with you. And secondly, He wants you to know as part of the body that others are going to be with you too. And you're not going to walk through this life alone. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be conceited. Which brings us back really even to verse 3 where he repeats the fact that be careful of pride. If there's one thing that can upset the unity in the body, can begin to cause us to just be very self-centered and do things that are very selfish and not considerate of others and how it's going to affect them in the body, and it's all about me, is when I'm more important than everybody else and everybody better look out, and, and I begin to think, pride, pride. says, let's lay our pride down. Because a life defined by God is also a life of humility. Because Jesus Christ was probably the most humble. And he was God. And if Jesus Christ could humble himself, then he will enable those who follow him to humble ourselves as well. See ourselves in proper perspective. But also to see ourselves in a way to where we're living as much for others as for ourselves. All right. I've thrown a lot at you tonight. I'm willing to go a little bit further, but I think at this point I'd like to stop and see if there's any questions or comments. So here's a mic. Question. Jeff, when you were talking about uh, using your gifts and people not knowing what their gifts are, I think so many people are really afraid to to go out there because they're afraid they're not going to do it right or do it good enough. And he's not a Christian author, but he is a strong Christian. Zig Ziglar always said, anything worth doing well is worth doing poorly until you can learn to do it well. And um, I, I think that that sometimes we just don't even go out there and take the risk. And if you've ever watched me take offering, it should give anybody hope. (laughs) 
No, it's a, it's a great point, and, and it's what Paul says. When we do find out what our gifts or gift is, and we begin to use it, we've got to be empowered by the Spirit of God as we use it, and not depend upon us, but depend upon Him to work through us. Sort of a saying that I like to use is, it's not my ability, it's my availability. And if I make myself available, God will use me. Because it's not about my ability, it's about my availability. Other Jeff, questions? Or Jeff, comments? I just wanted the people here tonight to know that the next spiritual gifts class, um, Roger Weiss has scheduled it for sometime in January. And um, you can sort of get most of it in the first day, but they did extend it out to three Sundays straight. Just because it's a lot of processing to not only figure out what the gifts are, but how they work and how you work with them and how you can use them here or wherever you go. So January. Thank you. I did not know that. So January and it's going to be, which I'm sort of glad it's three Sundays because it is, would be a lot to cover in one, one Sunday. Yeah. So be looking out for that in January. Anything else? At one point in time, you said something about letting God define you rather than us defining ourselves. And I get that conceptually, but not necessarily like, what do you need to do physically to make sure that we're letting God define who we are and what we do with our lives rather than us like having, because sometimes it's easy to, to get the idea of that, but hard to actually act out on it physically on letting God do that in our lives. Great question. Um, I would say that my answer to that, Seth, is that Any way that I can actively be influenced by the Spirit of God is a way that I'm letting God define my life. So, if I'm in His Word, I should be letting the Spirit of God take His Word and define my life. In my prayer life, one of the reasons why many times in the New Testament it says, pray in the Spirit. The reason it says that is it's saying... Pray under the control and influence and power of the Spirit even as we pray. Let God even use my prayer time to influence and define my life. I think a Bible study, if the Spirit of God is here and working and whatever, that the Spirit of God can take the feeble, frail things that I'm saying up here and can use them in our lives. I think any way that I am making myself available or availing myself of opportunities where the Spirit of God can impact my life and my thinking, I'm allowing God to define it. Um, You know, a missions trip. Um, You know, I even hate to start naming things because really then I'm putting God in a box and saying, well, God can work through the Spirit here. and I think the Spirit of God can work in my life even through people that I don't like. I mean, let's take Saul and David as an example. Saul was trying to kill David. And the reason why God allowed Saul to even be in that position as long as he was, is God wanted to kill the Saul that was in David. Because there was a piece of Saul in David that God didn't want in David when David finally got to be the king of Israel. And so God was going to use Saul as a way to strengthen David and to make David into what he would have... So again, I think it's just great question. And, and the best I can answer that is just being open to the Spirit of God in whichever way and through whatever means God can influence my thinking and, and my way of looking at things, 
And even sometimes it's not necessarily always a positive. Sometimes it's through suffering. Sometimes it's through pain. But the Spirit of God can maybe use it to begin to define who, who I am. Yeah. Yes, back here. Can you give us some insight in the uh, passage um, in verse 12, be joyful in hope? Our joy, according to the Bible, is connected with our hope. And hope in the Bible is defined differently than hope as we use it in the English language. When we use the word hope in the English language, we're speaking about something that we wish for, but we're not certain of. You know, I hope this, I hope that, you know, that's the way we usually use it in the English language. And the reason I have to to do that is because in the Bible, the Greek word for hope is an absolute confident expectation. And the reason it's a confident expectation is because my hope is not built on anything transitory, anything temporal, anything on this earth. But the Bible teaches me that my hope needs to be placed in an unchanging God and in his unchanging word and in his faithful word. Therefore, for instance, using heaven as an example, I have hope that I'm going to be in heaven one day, not based upon how good Jeff Royce is, but based upon the fact that there was a time in my life where I accepted Jesus Christ in my as my savior. And God told me that if I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, my sins would be forgiven and there would be a home for me in heaven. Therefore, I have that confident expectation when I die that 2 Corinthians 5, 8 reminds me of that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know as soon as I die, I'm going to heaven and I have that hope. I have that confidence. I have that. Well, when you and I have that kind of confidence and expectation about what's going to happen in the future. That, that helps my joy because then my joy is not based like my happiness. My happiness is based on my circumstances. So if I'm having a good day, I'm happy. If I'm having a bad day, I'm unhappy because my happiness ebbs and flows with the circumstances of life or where I find myself in life. Hope is totally different. Biblical hope is not grounded or connected to my circumstances at all. That's why Paul could get thrown into prison and start singing about it. Because Paul knew that the reason I was thrown into prison is God has a purpose for me being in prison. And many times it was because either the prisoners or the jailers or somebody needed to know about Jesus Christ. So there was always that hope that if God allowed it, there was a purpose behind it. And that's how Paul could live. And that's where our joy then as a Christian never goes up or down, or at least it shouldn't. Because our joy is always tied to our relationship with God, which cannot change. And our joy is always tied to the unchanging, faithful promises of God, which cannot change. Therefore, I can walk through the day having this joy, knowing that, you know, my circumstances may be such. And I, I might not be really happy about it, but I've got this joy knowing that there's something beyond. And there's something that's more real than that. But. That's a great question. I have a question. When, how do you discern from times in your life where you find yourself in a situation and you're trying to figure out if God is punishing you, <laughs> spanking you from not being faithful to the things that you know to be true, or if God is trying to use you 
that he's put you in that situation for a reason. So kind of that flee or endure attitude, how do you really discern that? I guess my answer to that would be that I believe that when God is disciplining me because of sin in my life, I'm going to know it because his Holy Spirit will convict me about it. And I will be very clear that the reason that I'm suffering the consequence for that is I clearly disobeyed a clear direction of God in his word. And, and, and I know it because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if I can lay my head on the pillow at night and, and there's no conviction in my life that the Holy Spirit is saying, oh, you know, there's this in your life that's really out of bounds and you need to deal with this. If I can lay my head on the pillow at night and go to sleep and know that me and God, everything's okay, then I know that there's no conviction there. Because the, the, the thing about the Holy Spirit is, I might not even get it the first time or the second time, but if I'm doing something that is displeasing to God, God's Holy Spirit will not let me rest until I deal with it. He, he will continue to, to prompt me to the point where I acknowledge, okay, you're right, I, that, that was wrong. And then whatever consequences of the fallout of that decision, I will be able to trace back to the fact that I, I missed the mark and I got off the path. That's the way I guess I would define that. Let me close with this thought. We're going to come back to chapter 12 for just a few minutes next week. But I want to end on this very important note. And we don't have time to totally develop it, so come back next week. I'll finish the development. But I want you to see why it's so important, too, that he ends chapter 12 the way he does. He begins in verse 18 this way. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing this you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now... Pastor Lynn just dealt with these verses just a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning in his message. But I do want to come back to them next week and further develop them, but I want to end with this. One of the important things here, going back to how it ties into us letting God define our life, is for this reason. I need to get to the point in my life where I do not allow a situation, no matter how painful, or another person, to define who I am, what I am, or what I become. Again, I need to let God alone define my life. And many times we go through life and we've been hurt by somebody. Somebody has deeply hurt us. And because, you know, we haven't come to the point of forgiveness and letting that go and giving God his place of wrath in their life and trying to seek vengeance or whatever, that it eats us up so much that our life pretty much becomes defined by that thing or that person. And God would say, are you going to let them have that power over you? Are you going to let your life be defined by that relationship or that incident or that hurtful conversation or that vicious attack or that slander, or that, are you really going to let? Because here's what God would say to all of us tonight. Any power that another human being has over us is a power that we give them. That we allow them to have. Not that they have inherently. 
We, we give them that power. And God says, don't over, be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. And let your life not be defined by that or them, but let your life be defined by me. Terrible illustration, but it's the only one I think of, okay? The Hatfields and the McCoys. I'm sorry, I'm going back to, I, I, I was born very close to West Virginia, and the Hatfields and McCoy feud was in West Virginia. And here are two families, very famous in history, who basically had a feud with each other, and, and the fathers got in a fight with each other, and then it was passed down to their children and their grand. And for many, many generations in West Virginia, the Hatfield family and the McCoy family killed each other and feuded with each other. And guess what? All through history, the Hatfields and the McCoys are defined by each other. And, and simply, one of the things that God is saying through the rest of chapter 12, and we're going to, again, pick it up here and develop it a little bit more than this, is don't let a situation, no matter how painful, don't let another human being ever define what your life is, what it looks like, what it becomes. Don't give them that power. But let God, through His power, help you to overcome the evil, even if they've done it to you, and help Him Enable you to rise above it and to live above it and to let your life not be dragged down by that or by them. That's just one of the things that God is encouraging us to do here in Romans chapter 12. I know I've run over a few minutes. Let me just say this before I pray. I believe all of us here tonight could make some kind of decision. I don't know whether it's presenting our body a living sacrifice, surrendering our life to the will of God, becoming a part of the local body and not being that lone ranger out there trying to do it myself and plugging in a little bit more, finding out what my gifts are. I don't know. We've covered a lot of territory tonight. My only encouragement is let the Spirit of God take His Word and bring you and I both to a point where we make a decision tonight that's going to bring honor and glory to the Lord bring purpose to our lives, and bring a building up in the body of Christ. Because this Bible study on Tuesday night is not just for information. It's for what? Transformation. It's not just to get some more facts in our head. It's to allow God to change our life through His Word, by His Spirit. Let's pray. God, I just pray tonight that You would... uh, Just use Romans chapter 12 once again just to speak to our hearts. And God, just whatever whatever things you're laying before us tonight, just help us to be obedient and to know that if we follow you, we're, we're following the right path. We're following the good path. We're following a path that, Lord, you've got this uniquely well-fitted responsibility just waiting for us. God, I pray tonight that you have and will continue to encourage these folks that come out so faithfully on Tuesday night. Just continue to build this body up through this Bible study. Make us all stronger. Make us stronger individually and make us stronger as a body. And continue to bring more and more people in that all of us just may grow up to become even stronger and greater to bring more honor and glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.